This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Hey, this is Matthew Sweet, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. For guitar pop aficionados, Matthew Sweet's keen sense of melody has elevated him to the heights of power pop royalty. I spoke with Mr. Sweet about his new album, Cat's Paw, as well as a few choice songs from his back catalog. While we weren't slated for a full-on retrospective chat, our discussion uncovers the evolution of Matthew's recording process from the mid-80s through today. Along the way, we talk about some of Sweet's classic music and pay homage to his most celebrated guest personnel. Let's listen. Matthew Sweet, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh my gosh, you got a new album called Cat's Paw? Is this your 13th studio album? Gosh, I, I don't really know. We would, have to, <laughs> <laughs> we would have to look at... I know, it's weird that I don't know. But you have a lot of separate side projects, too. Yeah, so it's like that affects how you count them. Um, if you are including the records with Susanna Hoffs, 
um, the Thorns project. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some some other things. I don't know if if uh, we count them or not. Gotcha. Lucky thirteen is how I look at that. I never never been afraid of thirteen. I've always kind of liked it. You know the answer to this one for sure. You've got a new studio, maybe that you started a couple albums ago. Yeah, I mean it's it's in my house. I've had a studio in my you know in a room in my house for really probably 20 22 years i moved uh from los angeles after 20 years there my wife and i moved uh back to nebraska in uh i think about 2013 then i you know had a new room to set up in and you know do all my recording in in our new house so yeah i do I mean, you know, it's really home studio. I don't have special stuff built in for the sound or anything. I just find a room that I like for it, you know, wherever I'm living. And, you know, my actual recording system is high-end Pro Tools. Uh, And so I'm able to get stuff that sounds really good at home, you know, and that's something we didn't have you know before the more modern era you know you kind of had to have much more expensive stuff and a whole lot of out outboard gear Mm -hmm. and uh you know over time it's just gotten more and more simplified which is something i used to you know always look forward to i've always been kind of into technology and the future and uh even though my music is pretty uh, organic, you know, um, and I remember early on in interviews, I would say, you know, someday there'll be just a little box and it'll have all the tracks you could ever want (laughs) and do everything. And that'll be really cool. And that's, you know, kind of what it is now. Only the box is a computer and we have a big monitor too. Um, you know, and, Mike Prees for going into the Pro Tools that, you know, sound cool. And uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm a home studio guy. It's how I started out. It's how, what I did when I learned to write songs was when the very first uh, cassette four tracks came on the market by uh, Tascam and... Uh, trying to think what the other one was there was one called Fostex Fostex yeah and uh you know when I was a teenager I had uh you know after school slash weekend job working at a music store so like I was right there when we heard about them and knew they were coming in and I was like you know I have to have one of those it was a impossibly expensive to me at the time although I think they were really just, you know, maybe $400. Um, and I just spent all my work money, <laughs> you know, getting, <laughs> getting one and, and then, you know, kind of paid it down as I was working. So my music came out of a solitary situation. I think I was so nervous and kind of uh, uh, shy about doing music and especially about starting to sing and write songs Um, It allowed me to do it in this really private way, always in headphones. I never was in the same room with someone playing something I did back. 
I would, I would only let people listen on like a Walkman, you know, I give them the queued up cassette and they could listen you know, <laughs> to a song or something. I don't feel that way as much now, but I still, I guess I would probably choose to have people listen without me having to sit there <laughs> and also listen <laughs> sure. to it and have, you know, feelings about myself, you know, certainly. I know you played all the instruments on Ketzball except maybe drums, and is that it? That's right, yeah. My longtime dear friend Rick Mank played the drums. Is he living close by? He uh, actually, we both lived in Los Angeles for a really long time, and not long after my wife and I moved to Nebraska, his wife got a really good job in Minneapolis. Hmm. And I think, you know, Rick had a great job at a, a vinyl record store in Los Angeles, and it was really hard for him to leave. I think for me, I had come to the point where I felt like it kind of didn't matter where I was because of the internet, because I'd gotten better and more comfortable at traveling, you know, it kind of was easier for me. But they moved to Minneapolis maybe a year or two after I moved, and it's just, you know, a 40-minute flight from Omaha, where I live. So we, I feel like we're close by. Not like in L.A. when he could just drive over, over to my house and we could do stuff. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when, when I need to record drums, he just flies down here and we spend three or four days and do a bunch of stuff. And that's kind of all, all it takes. So I feel like he's nearby. How does he participate? Does he have you to play with live and you don't lay your tracks down till later or do you have tracks down already? Um, generally, um, we track together. Um, I have at least guitar chords sort of mapped out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these days I don't really have to have my structure totally figured out because I can cut things out and move things around mm -hmm. really easily. Um, but generally, I have sort of a structure. I have guitar chords, usually some kind of melody, maybe not all the words yet. And uh, the two of us just do it with me on guitar and singing and him playing the drums. And he doesn't necessarily know too much what it's going to become, but it's in my head sort of what the feeling is. And uh, once we're done, then I can go to town on overdubbing. Mm -hmm. The next thing I do usually is play bass guitar um, along with whatever guide guitar I did. And then I'll, you know, redo the guide guitars. In the case of Cat's Paw, it's really a very simple instrumentation. 
it's just mainly guitar, bass, and drums. Yep. And one of the differences this time was that I played all of my own uh, lead guitar parts on it. So I did rhythm guitars, maybe a few little, you know, lines, melodic lines of guitar that were, you know, part of bringing a song across. And then I just improvised two or three takes of playing through the whole thing, almost like scatting, you know, if I was Mm -hmm. singing and kind of finding uh, different melodies and trying different things. And then I would, you know, look back through that stuff and just kind of pick my favorite things, maybe go through and get rid of everything that was terrible or a really bad, what we call clam when it's that (laughs) note. And I'll just get rid of all those. So I'm looking at this audio then uh, on three tracks where I know that anything that's there kind of works musically. And I just kind of go through listening to them and pick which thing I like the best. I really didn't overwork anything. Um, I just accepted kind of whatever I'd done and just tried to use what I felt worked the best. And that's really something that I learned over time recording so many other guitar players that the less I told them what to do, the less I had an idea what it was supposed to be, um, the more they could open up and just be themselves and kind of the more delighted I was with what they played because it was, you know, purely um, creative, you know. So uh, I think I maybe I play piano on a song or two um, on the album, but mostly it's just those guitars and bass and singing and then Rick's drums, which are really uh, prominent on Cat's Paw. It kind of gelled together in a way that was really whole. And I kind of thought of it as being kind of edgy and um, maybe a little more aggressive than I am sometimes. Um, But as time's passed and I've been talking about the album a lot, um, I've kind of realized it still has the wide range of kinds of feelings, emotions, approaches to songs like I would normally have. Uh, Maybe just not quite as much, you know, consciously trying to have you know, really slow, quiet songs and um, faster, exciting songs and, you know, types of songs I didn't think about so much this time. I didn't have a lot of extra songs for it. Um, There's probably only four or five, maybe six songs that aren't on the album. Um, And, you know, usually I kind of overwrite a little more than that. Um, so it was a little simpler, even in that approach. And if I had any worry, was really that it would be too much kind of the same all through it. But like I said, I've kind of found out after the fact that that's not really the case. No, in fact, it's not. you got a halftime song here. You've got mellow, as you always have some good mellow tunes and some you know harder tunes. You, know, you talked about using guest guitarists, you've had some very, some amazing guitarists, Richard Lloyd and 
I want to say Robert Quine. Am I pronouncing that right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, toured a lot with Ivan Julian. You know, they were all kind of guitar heroes of an era when I was a teenager and really digging a lot of new records. So I was pretty starstruck by all those guys. And I never really spent time learning from them in terms of sitting down and going, show me how to do what you do. <laughs> um, I was always, I guess, too wrapped up in trying to do my part in it. Um, but I think looking back and after having now done this album and trying to attempt to do it myself, I can see, I can hear influences from all those guys. So can I. I think in, in particular, Richard Lloyd had a way he attacked his playing and a way he heard melody. He's really kind of very much a pop guy, even though he came from a, you know, more of a punk new wave kind of background. And, uh, you know, I'm really a melody guy, but I loved how the edge to how he played, how he attacked the sorts of scales and things he played. Um, I think that that influenced me just how he would go for it. And it came out of nowhere. And I think that taught me as much as anything, like what it means to let go and just let it come out and let it be what it is. And uh, so I feel, you know, really fortunate to have been around so many great guitar players over the years. And, you know, and that's not to leave out all the different guys I've toured with. Um, you know, they've all been great. You know, and I'm always, it was like Christmas time to have people play on my music when I didn't know what they were going to do, you know, in mm -hmm. advance. And even now, when I work with other people, um, except for, you know, Rick, who I do drums in person with, oftentimes we're sending files over the internet and it's the same thing. Like, I'm so excited to be receiving what the person decided to play, you know, in their home and their, um, you know, private environment. And I think it's been good for everybody because it takes away a sort of pressure that, although maybe sometimes yields results, usually I think feeling pressured when you're to deliver when you're playing on somebody's record is not, uh, necessarily a good thing. I think mm -hmm. when you feel free and really relaxed and not sort of under the gun is usually when people can express themselves most clearly with what they hear, you know?
you must have picked up stuff from osmosis because I absolutely hear your innate sense of harmony and melody in not just your singing, which is always there, and your chords, but your guitar and your bass. So when you played lead guitar on this one, I hear what I think of as classic Matthew Sweet albums like 100% Fun and Girlfriend, um, which you didn't play lead on, and you didn't pamper any of the parts. You let them be what they are, but you totally understand their approach in that you sort of go through the scale and land on notes that create tension and then pull away from those notes. And And notes that please me. Mm -hmm. And that's totally, you know... uh, possible because i'm the guy who wrote the song i think i'm gonna hear my own special you know notes that are the ones that do something for me yes. you know um so it's you're you're not the first person that said that to me that in a way it harkens back more than usual to those early records and you know i love that um i really really enjoyed doing it it was just different for me to do that kind of improvisation on my own stuff. And, you know, it was kind of delightful the same way as when I work with someone else. And, you know, I did consciously not, uh, I really tried not to overwork anything or overthink anything. And I really didn't know if it was good enough that, people would like it or if they'd go, yeah, you know, he can kind of do it. (laughs) Um, But um, I'm really glad I did it. It gives the album a little bit of its own thing. And, and and people seem to connect really well with the record. Um, So that makes me feel like, you know, it kind of worked. It totally did. Did it take longer to do it yourself? No, I think it's really quick. I mean, I, have always liked recording quickly. I always was kind of frustrated if things weren't moving along quickly in the studio. Um, I like a little bit of sort of instant gratification when I'm recording. Um, I like to get things on it and have it start. It's magic to have a song pop out of nowhere. And that's really where I kind of get my songs. But the really magical part is kind of when they become kind of what they are and even I didn't know how it would work or what it really was until I've added all these things and sung and written all the words and uh, so it's the most satisfying part for me it's when I um, get my highest kind of point of pleasure in the creation of you know a record And uh, although I love playing live at this point in my life, I love seeing the fans and seeing how much the music matters to them and sharing it with them in a way I wasn't really capable of doing when I was younger and under more pressure. Um, It's still recording that was my first love and it always feels really personal to me. And uh, so, you know, I get, to that point i'm really into it it feels kind of right to me and then we master a record and that's kind of the end of it for me i sort of move away from listening to it and it's more about 
finding out what other people thought about it. And after a little bit of time passes, I feel like I'm kind of clean slate and then I'll start writing again and working toward making a record. You know, I have the uh, advantage, you know, these days, unlike in the old days, I used to make demos first. Uh, I'd make a whole lot of demos from which I pulled the songs for an album. And, you know, eventually the demos became, you know, pro quality. And it it was kind of frustrating because early earlier in my career, oftentimes people got really attached, even I did, to demos I made of songs. And then when I went in and made the record, I worried maybe it's not quite as good or and I knew a lot of my friends really liked the demos of things, you know. And so uh now we I kind of you know, get to capture that on records I make in a way that I didn't get to, you know, earlier on when we didn't have the technology to do it. I can create while I'm working on a record and know that I could use whatever I decide to. Well, I have recently bought the Looking at the Sun and Winona demos. Uh, Well, I bought them all, but I listened to those two in particular from Girlfriend and I love them, and they have a different kind of charm. Do you want to run away with me? Would you really like to run away with me? I can feel very clearly, no longer see. going to ask you if you still make demos because you've got fans that want other versions of the same thing you can do stripped down versions you can do an all vocal version 
and you're still satisfying that bonus track type thing. Well, yeah, and it also ends up where the bonus tracks you have available to you are more album quality. So in a way, you know, just songs that I didn't end up for whatever reason putting on the album are available to me to release as extra special, you know, things. Sometimes when I have the idea for a song, if it's really um, formed, you know, when I'm writing it, there is kind of an acoustic demo. There's an acoustic version where maybe I sang um, on it. Um, But mostly it's kind of in the studio. And, you know, even a long time ago in sort of classic rock history, you know, once studios became uh, more and more accessible to, you know, rock artists, instead of going in and having to record their whole album of songs in 12 hours or something, they started to be able to go in and create wow in the studio. I think of the Beatles a lot Mm -hmm. when I bring that up because they, they were some of the first people who went in there and maybe didn't even know what they were going to do. And they went in the studio and things kind of people had little bits of ideas and those would, you know, become what they were going to be in the process. They were, you know, being creative while recording, not just in instrumentation, but in the whole approach of songs and what they kind of ended up being. Well, on Catspaw, you've got um, some interesting things worth talking about if you want to. I don't know how how nerdy you like to get about your music after it's already in the can. I'll give it a shot. (laughs) But I love the two lead guitars on Come Home, because what, what I hear, and you can correct me if I don't have this right, I hear you playing the same lead part twice so that there's a delay between them, but it's not a, it's a natural delay. And then at the solo, they split into two different animals and do two different things. That's so interesting. Yeah, that would have been just a product of when I went through whatever I improvised on the track. And I think... Instead of pulling one of them away, you left them both in. Yeah, occasionally, if they seem, if they work in a way together that is pleasing to me, you know, I'll leave them that way. Um, I do remember there being things, I'm sure if I were to listen to what you're talking about um it might have been two different takes in the solo where i just had the pieces to go back and forth between them and uh you know it's a a little different in a solo because it wants to be more of a melodic kind of performance than punctuating things like it is during the rest of the song but uh you know whenever i felt like i liked it with more than one of them, you know, I would go for it. That's a thing on records. You know, there's some really great records that do that. Um, One that just popped into my head um, is uh, the Derek and the Dominoes record, where there's a lot of kind of lead going on 
at the same time you have you know a slide guitar playing lead and right and then you know a not slide guitar playing lead and they all kind of interweave with each other and create sort of a a different texture and i'm sure i learned that you know through recording other people where you know if i heard a couple things and i liked them and maybe i hadn't decided between them you know oftentimes i'd try using both in case it did something special and to some extent when you do three or four takes of improvising on something you will do similar things in certain spots Mm -hmm. where they almost match and uh you know i i i don't remember ever going and then purposely doubling the exact thing I did on another track, but I'm sure there's places where it was close enough that it's essentially doing that. I know there's a few times on the album where one of the guitars made a couple of harmony notes with the other guitar, and I would use those occasionally. So it was, you know, kind of a a brief bit of dual harmony guitars, you know? Sure. Uh, fans who are looking for familiarity, something that they've heard in the past on a Matthew Sweet album, they're going to get that. But they're also going to get something new. They're going to get your sense of harmony and melody. But on Blown Away, you sing close backing harmony Oz, and they're reminiscent of the harmonies on the intro to Walk Out. Breaking down to pieces go interesting because it sounds like matthew sweet there you know (laughs) and that's good we want that but it doesn't sound like a copy it just sounds like that's our home that's where we belong yeah i mean that that's what i'm looking for is just what appeals to me what i'm comfortable with um you know i i would have had no idea it had any connection to walk out but it's also totally unsurprising you know that you know we when you're one guy Um, I mean, you do have people, artists who are real chameleons, who change their style of music through the times changing. That's not how I am. I'm more like a potter or a painter where it reflects me, but it doesn't reflect an attempt to force myself to be really different in some kind of commercial way. Um, It's one of the things I love about being older is I'm just totally free to call all my own shots and I can think of it that way. I don't ever have someone saying, this is what we think you ought to do or you need to do. You know, like I remember a time 
toward the late 90s and people were just like you've got to use loops and make it more current and you know and i was like i hate loops you know <laughs> and so exactly. so i just kept kind of doing my own thing and uh so it's always going to kind of be like i am it's going to be kinds of things i like it's going to be kinds of playing that i like it's going to be notes that i like <laughs> and that we like too because we like you oh well that makes me happy you know just feeling like it's me you know i'd like to ask you about a couple songs that are 100 percent fun because sometimes i talk with my musician friends and i point out stuff that on a song that they know and love and they never noticed it something that's really kind of important to me and then it becomes important to them and this is an example of that so on the song not when i need it in verse one you say look at you you're just as blind trying to grab your little piece of mind the next time it comes around you say say a little should suffice but more than a little of you is so more than a little of you is so nice. <laughs> the way you take that line, that one word, and then because it's different, you're saying so nice, you have the forethought or the instinct to make that so nice. And I just want to say thank you for that. Wonderful moment. Uh, well, you know, I remember really liking that song at the time. I think it's close to the beginning of the record, if I remember correctly. And... Uh, for some reason, we never really played it live, but I know what you're talking about. And that was just, you know, by happenstance, not mm -hmm. because necessarily I knew what I was doing. Um, but, you know, I love melody and I like, you know, bending it around and sometimes singing different um, notes or in a different way of holding out, you know, the line. It's funny, I, I had this thing I would do in those early years where I would, just like on the bus or something, I would make up a whole new melody to all the songs I was playing. <laughs> so like we would do a soundtrack and I would have this whole other version of how I approach it, but just with a different melody. And sometimes even live, I would do like an intro to the song that was like the made up new melody mm -hmm. and then go into sort of the real song. And so I think just in my mind, I like playing with, I feel like melodies are very changeable and could go all over the place, you know? Sure. Um, so uh, uh, I think that might sort of touch on what you're talking about, but I, I really, really liked that song. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't think of it as being one that a lot of people have ever brought up to me. Um, but I'm glad that you brought it up. And I know and I get what you're talking about. And that's a cool thing. I mean, I just must have picked it up from other singers I listened to growing up that probably did that kind of thing. Wonderful. On the song, I Almost Forgot. I'm not sure if it's pedal steel or lap steel, because even after having somebody explain the difference to me, I still don't know. But I want to thank you for showing me that it, that instrument can be used in a lovely way, because I'm used to country music using it as a cliched device. 
I was a really big fan of a country rock pioneer uh, named Graham Parsons. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was something about Graham's music and about the essence of him that came through in his music that I really related to. And, you know, he also was in a band called the Flying Burrito Brothers that were a country-esque, well, what they called country rock. Graham called it cosmic American music. Um, but uh, I uh, was given a cassette by somebody um, of something that I wanted. And on the, the flip side of the cassette were the two solo Graham Parsons albums. And that's when I, you know, kind of fell in love with, even though it was country, even though I at the time, didn't think of country as something I necessarily liked a lot. It kind of gave me entry into that world as a fan. And I learned a lot more about kind of early, early country. And, you know, before it was modern country that maybe we thought of in the 80s and 90s as being a a little more cliche kind of thing, you know. Um, A lot of what is in rock comes from early country artists, you know, but in the specific sense of the steel guitar, um, I think that it's pedal steel on that. Um, I would guess in the credits, if there is uh, instrumentation, it might say which one it was. It would probably say lap steel if it wasn't pedal. But I ran into this guy who I met in New York City and he became, you know, one of the world's most well-known uh, pedal steel players and slide guitar players and guitar players in, gen- in general. And his name is Greg Lease. And when I met Greg, um, I think it was through this songwriter friend of mine in New York, uh, Jules Shear, who had once been in a band with Greg called the Funky Kings that was from Los Angeles. And uh, right when I met Greg and I heard he played pedal steel, I was like, do you know Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers and all that stuff? And he was like, yeah, totally. I love that all, you know. And uh, that's when I asked him to come in and he played all whatever beautiful uh, steel guitar is on the Girlfriend album. And... uh, then again, over the years, kind of whenever I used it, um, he's the one playing it. And he played lap steel on, you know, the song Girlfriend, that's just kind mm-hmm. of a, that he went along with my chord, um, rhythm chords, but kind of did a gritty sliding of those chords on lap steel. I didn't know, no. you need to backing me on to the good friend oh cause honey believe 
added, you know, some really nice things to records of mine. And he became where he was on everybody's records. And uh, it's really harder for me to get with him to record stuff now because he's so busy all the time with like superstar people. He's, you know, been playing, played with Clapton for a really long time. He uh, has played with Jackson Brown uh, a whole lot in recent years. Um, You know, just a whole ton of different people. I think around the time he played on Girlfriend, he was touring with Katie Lang. And so he's probably on a bunch of her records. And, uh, you know, he's really kind of a genius musical guy who just has a way he hears melody and things that is often really haunting or emotional. And, uh, and you know, one of the greatest musicians I've ever been lucky enough to play with. When we made the album Altered Beast, I had uh, this guy, another true great uh, a guy named Nicky Hopkins oh, yeah. played uh, piano on a bunch of Altered Beast, and including a lot of outtakes from it where we were just jamming. And he and Greg were in the studio at the same time and, you know, instantly recognized each other's musical genius. <laughs> and, uh, they did a lot of stuff where they were just kind of jamming together on the steel guitar mm-hmm. and on the piano. And I was maybe live on a mic with them, but really sort of mainly letting them, you know, improvise and do these things that weren't even associated with something we were recording on the album. So somewhere I have um, DAT tape recordings of the two of them uh, working together. And I think of it also because Nikki is another person who was just, an astounding musician, an incredible ear for music. He could listen through to a demo of my song or what I'd already recorded as a backing track for something and then go and sit at the piano, not hearing anything and write out all the chords and the changes and the structure of the song just from hearing it one time. He didn't have to kind of, go back and forth and learn, you know, what something was. Mm-hmm. He just had this incredible music ability. And uh, he, you know, was very sought after um, from England. And I knew him uh, from uh, a solo album of his that he made probably very early 70s, I would guess, maybe around 70. I'm not sure. Um, the album was called The Tin Man Was a Dreamer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it opens up with a song, I believe, called The Dreamer. I think it's called that. I could be wrong on the title. And I just found it to be this just incredible musically, um, the sentiment, the words and everything. Just a really special song that meant a lot to me. So it was a really big deal to um, be able to get him to play on that record of mine. He was living in Los Angeles at the time and my management found him, you know, and he came in and was just a lovely guy. And he played on, you know, Stone's records and, you know, with a million classic British 
artists during uh, the 60s and early 70s. Not to get away from the pedal steel guitar so much. That was great. But I kind of almost can't think about Greg without also thinking about Nikki because I have that experience, you know, seared in my memory of listening to these two guys just making stuff up and, um, you know, riffing off each other. I'll tell you what, I have a million more questions, but I want you to be able to do all your other interviews today. And I want to thank you. But Matthew Sweet, it's been fantastic talking with you. I can cross you off my bucket list now. And uh, <laughs> thanks for all your great music. Well, I'm really, really flattered by your kind words. And it's been great to talk to you. And I'm happy to do it again anytime. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 25 with Matthew Sweet. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the link for this episode. If you like the show, consider reviewing us wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.